welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB. I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, Medea Ocher, LARB's Managing Editor, and Kate Wolf, LARB's Editor-at-Large. Hello. Hi, Eric. Hey. Hey. I was going to wait for Kate to say hi first. I was thinking it was going to happen simultaneously. (laughs) That would have been cute. Yeah. Okay, so today we've got a conversation with Julietta Singh, author of No Archive Will Restore You, a blend of memoir, critical theory, and kind of her own personal vignettes that interrogate what it means to see a body as an archive of densely braided histories. I love this. This interview got like really heady, but also really fascinating. Agreed. Yeah. It's really up my alley as a person who is interested in um, bodies and archives. And I've also been recommending this to all the pregnant women I know, of which there are suddenly very many. Um, So Julieta's, (laughs) hopefully her sales will just skyrocket. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, she was great. Speaking of, actually, I loved hearing her talk about motherhood, though. It's like, like she has like such a, I'm trying to remember this actually on the interview, but it's like she has this very interesting like home situation. Arrangement. I think she did Yeah, I think she, yeah, I think she talks yeah. about it. And it's, I remember thinking like, oh my God, what a boon. What an incredible thing for that kid, for her child to experience. And then being like, I don't know if I would have been able to deal with all of that freedom and like all of the kind of like, you know, deconstruction that she like kind of does in terms of there was that great thing. I think she was talking about Disney princesses and being like allowing her daughter to like like the princess, but then being like, we should reflect on this. And like, (laughs) what do you like about it? My mom would just cover my ears if she didn't like the way something was being represented in. Really? But not your eyes? Yeah, just my ears. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't, not that I was watching something so violent oh, or I see, pornographic, I see. but more that if she didn't like the content or thought it was giving me the wrong message, just, we didn't debate it. She just tried to edit what? it out. <laughs> what, do you remember a thing that she, she did that with? You know, the only movie I remember it, I think it's called Hello Again with Shelley Long. If you guys, mm. Do you remember that one? There was some like, well, catty thing about women like between oh. two women talking about another woman yeah she thought was inappropriate that, that's the only thing i re- remember with it she really just put her hands over my ear. but you heard it anyway actually no i didn't i'm remembering the scenario right. But right i didn't i didn't hear what they said thank god because who knows what i would be <laughs> how you would have turned out if yeah I, if i had heard that line jamie wolf is a hero yeah <laughs> <laughs> and with that let's get to our conversation <laughs> with julietta saying let's do it We're excited to have Julietta Singh in the studio with us today to talk about her new book, No Archive Will Restore You. Julietta is an associate professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at the University of Richmond, where she works at the intersection of post-colonial studies, feminist and queer theory, and the environmental humanities. Part memoir, part work of theory, No Archive Will Restore You centers on the body as a bearer of history and histories as a unique and complex archive of that history's traces and flows, some of which we avow and some of which we disavow. Welcome to the show, Julieta. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So can I first have you describe a little bit for our readers kind of what the book is trying to do from like an argument kind of standpoint and interrogation of the body in the archive? And also a little bit about how you came to the project and who your influences were. I know Gramsci is one of them, mm-hmm. but I assume there's many. Yeah. 
So in a sense, I want to say the book doesn't really have an argument and I'm trained as an academic. And so a lot of the work that I've done is very argument driven and no archive will restore you is a bit of a departure and more of a meditation, I think, on the body rather than an mm. argument about the body. Right. But it sets off with Antonio Gramsci, a political theorist of the last century, who wrote a book called The Prison Notebooks. And in this book, he writes about the imperative that we all have to be critically conscious subjects to compile an inventory of all of the traces of history that have been deposited in each of us. Mm -hmm. And so he's thinking, of course, kind of politically and historically. And the project of No Archive Will Restore You is a kind of slightly perverted twist on Gramsci to turn us toward actual embodiment and yeah. to think more palpably about the traces that are left in us by other bodies, the ways that we're always in contact with the outside world. And I think for me, the book really grew out of a whole history of my own intellectual training as a graduate student in pursuit of the Which you the write idea. about in very funny ways <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> throughout um, the book. Yeah, yeah and it, the book sort of, you know, it's a bit of a fictitious beginning to this project, but I begin with the idea of being a graduate student being trained toward the archive. There was this particular moment where all of us were thinking about Jacques Derrida's book, Archive Fever, Fever yeah. and everybody was obsessed with the archive and what the archive was and what the archive meant. And I wanted to move away from the physical space of the archive or the idea of a collection of text that is outside of you mm -hmm. and to think instead about how we ourselves as embodied subjects are our own kinds of impossible archives. And one of the things I love about the Gramsci quote too is that he says, there's no way of ever compiling this inventory of the historical traces that make you, but it's your imperative to do it anyway. Is writing, therefore, kind of the main way you would collect those traces? Is that the memoir aspect of this book? Is writing about your experiences that you think... Yeah. How you go about it? I'm already curious to know if you think it's a memoir. Because if uh, it is, it's a sort of strange take on a memoir. I think it's one of many descriptions for the book. But I should just... Not that the whole book is as a genre, a memoir, but the personal writing yeah. here that, you know, catalogs your experiences and things that your body and your emotions yeah. have gone through, would you say that's your response to? I think so. And I think, you know, many writers will say this, but it's the thing that I know how to do and the thing that I do in order to function in the world. And so I think there might be myriad other ways to pursue a kind of archive of the body. Mine is literary because it's what I know and what I use to thrive. I actually wonder if we could go back to the Gramsci quote and could you read it? Because it, it is such a starting point for the book. I just want to make it clear to listeners where you start. Great. Yeah. So the quote is, and I write this on the chalkboard in my classrooms at least once a semester. So I love this passage so much. And it's also the epigraph of the book. The starting point of critical elaboration is the consciousness of what one really is and is knowing thyself as a product of the historical processes to date which has deposited in you an infinity of traces without leaving an inventory. And then he goes on to say, therefore, it is imperative at the outset to compile such an inventory. And I wonder if you could also, and maybe you do this for your students all the time if you're writing it on the board, unpack that for listeners a little bit. Yeah. Because, well, it's easier when you see it on the page, but you begin with this idea of traces without an inventory, right? So there are things within us, traces of other people, other environments, other experiences, et cetera. 
but we don't have a listing of them. We don't know what they are. Are there other ways in which you understand this quote? Well, you know, I often situate it autobiographically because I'm such a hodgepodge hybrid subject myself. You know, I'm an immigrant to the United States, but my parents are both immigrants to Canada. And I come out of very particular histories of radical violence. So on my maternal side, the Holocaust and the displacement of Jews in Germany, And on my paternal side from India and the partition of India in 1947. And so both of my parents come out of these radically violent historical experiences that are indelibly marked on them and therefore also on me. Mm -hmm. And we could think about this in sort of more popular circulating terms like intergenerational trauma. I'm interested not just in sort of thinking about the traumatic aspects of it, but the ways that we actually live it out and play it out and the way that it recurs and repeats and also gets dispersed through our contact with other people. And so the inventory of traces, again, like I'm speaking autobiographically, and each one of us could do this for ourselves, but there's a way in which the experiences that we have as individuals in the world, whether that's coming out of um, queer histories or racial minority histories or whatever experiences that we have as embodied subjects in the world, is one way of tracing that. But we also need to think in a bigger historical frame to think about who we are and how we leave things behind and how we're constituted and how we're made up. It seems like one of the central positions and really one of the problems that your meditation confronts is this sense of the body as something that at once is intimate, feels knowable and known, but has no real autonomous archive, right? There's one line, and I can't remember, it's early on in the book, where you talk about how it's like the three orify, right? So it's like you have the mouth, the anus, and the vagina. And that like these are places in which things enter into the body, leave mm-hmm. the body. And sometimes those enterings and leavings are things that we hold on to as great memories mm-hmm. or openings, those mm-hmm. kind of things. But also sometimes they're things that we want to disavow. Yeah. So the body, which is seems in certain ways of thinking about it, seems to have a radical autonomy. It, my body is mine. Yes. One of the things that you start to trouble is where the body breaks apart and not just into like oje partiels or anything like that, but like it becomes both yours and someone else's. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think that all of us have been trained through a very imperial Western European conception of what the self is. And so even at the level of like my daughter in school right now, I just FaceTimed with her yesterday and she was telling me about a play that she watched about the ability to say no to certain kinds of contact, right? And she's in grade Mm. one. So she's learning this, you know, my body is my own. I can say no to your touch, et cetera. Of course, I'm in support of that lesson. But there's also a way in which the body is always being permeated. And I don't just mean, I mean, I list the orifices, you know, like in part just for the thrill of writing about anuses. Sure, right, right, right. (laughs) And vaginas. And shit, which you really like to write about. I really do. I do. I write. There's long passages on shitting in this book. It's true. I'm trying to think too about just the porousness of the body. I mean, even at the level of environmental contagions, even at the level of the ways that... Skin cells, Skin cells, and we're sloughing off into the world around us and we're taking in things for better and for worse. And, you know, a lot of the sort of current academic discourse about this would turn to affect and think about, okay, we're just meeting for the first time and it's a great vibe in this room and so I'm feeling really good and we're in conversation and it's mobilizing and it's bolstering. But we imagine ourselves as fully contained subjects and forget that we're always picking up and exchanging with each other feelings, molecules, cells, etc. And so I think... Part of what I was trying to do was to think against the logic of 
the individual bounded self. Like the sovereign. The sovereign self. And actually, it's wonderful that you say that because I wrote an academic book called Unthinking Mastery that came out earlier this year in January. And that book is really trying to unthink that sovereign, masterful self that is at the core of a long history of political theory mm-hmm. and even the resistance movements to colonization, which want to resist that sovereign subject at the level of mastery or colonization, but then also weirdly recuperate Regenerate forms of mastery or like sovereignty. if we're just yeah. masters over ourselves, we can refuse the mastery of the colonizer. There are all these really interesting examples of where we reaffirm the sense of ourselves as bounded subjects. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to just think against that intimately. You know, I think the book, if it appears as a memoir, if it can be read as a memoir, I think it can. But it's a rather strange one if we (laughs) constitute it because it's not a text that's trying to say, I was born at this time and here's the story of my life. But it rather uses moments of my life to animate questions or problems that I'm trying to think through around the body. So I think that idea of the interchange that we're always involved in that we can't necessarily see or we can't necessarily perceive is really important, especially at a moment where we're all drugged and trying to live into this perfect body and this perfect ideal of happiness and this perfect life to remember that we're not in control (laughs) of of everything all the time. I do want to ask you here then about those moments that you isolate within the book. There are several of them. And I would say, yes, if it's a memoir, it's structured less in a chronological or sort of plot driven way, more in terms of the various steps of the theory that you build or of the ideas that you formulate. But some of those moments, one of them is the birth of your daughter. Mm -hmm. Another is a sickness. So one of the things that I was wondering was, how did you approach those moments within the work that you were doing, within the critical thinking that you were doing? Could you just talk about how those moments really affected the way that you thought about this porousness of the body and the archive and the traces, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, you know, the book started as a strange, it started as sort of subpar poetry. It was a collection of poems that then morphed into poetry and prose, this hybrid mashup. And then eventually it just sort of spilled out into this form. Okay. And You know, I think it's clear when you read the book that there were things that I was like working through and trying to think through that were moments of my life that were radically altering. And there's a term that's au courant right now in literary circles that I'm sure you've all heard that's auto theory. Mm -hmm. And so I think the book is being read by the those who have read it. It's officially out today, but (laughs) it's had a small life so far before it comes out. But auto theory is a term that's circulating to describe the book. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about it is that auto theory seems to be a term that would describe formally what the book is doing engaging with theoretical thought in a very personal way in order to animate something, questions about the body and embodiment. But at the same time, the purpose of the book is to show the way that there is no auto <laughs> in what I'm trying to yeah. write, right? Because I'm, it's never a single self that's being articulated. And so with the birth of my daughter, I was trying to think a lot about sound. And you mentioned the orifices and the ears, I think, were the idea of like hearing and listening and sonic registers also become really important, I think, as the book builds. So does touch and the Mm. forms of radical touch that are outside of sexual economies and outside of parental economies, like what other kinds of touching can do for us as communities. 
But I think that the things that animate the book, those moments that animate the book are trying to think about, for instance, childbirth as not an act of a woman moving something through her body, but as a kind of radical collaboration between bodies, you know, and to like rethink birthing in a very different way. Something I really appreciated in the book was the way you talk about watching videos, instead of watching these kind of highly produced videos of people giving birth that have, you know, always a very similar narrative arc, you know, I mean, obviously, yeah. Yeah. obviously there's always a we birth scene. We all know scene. what the climax yes. is. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you sure do. But, um, but I mean, those, it's strange because when I was pregnant, I watched a lot of birth videos and I thought, God, these are like so much like porn. Like yeah. it's just the same mm. build up, yeah. the same climax. There's yeah. all these like strange shots of yeah, people yeah, yeah. and then whoop, whoop, there comes the baby. Yeah. But watching an animal give birth, which yeah. you were saying you were really inspired by and the yeah. kind of sounds and the way that animals... Yeah. It's clear of so many cultural cliches about birth and it's just about embodiment in a way. And so I thought that was really interesting. And now I'm wishing that we had talked before I had written that part because I wasn't watching videos of people giving birth, but I'm Uh. so interested that you see it as (laughs) pornographic and I can totally imagine it. Also because porn is so unoriginal. It repeats the same Mm -hmm. kind of moves. It repeats the same discourse. It's kind of boring in the same way that I imagine birthing videos to be. But I I dropped out of the parenting classes, those mandated classes you're supposed to take to learn how to give birth because they were so irritating and facile and strange and instead just went to mammalian images like National Geographic giraffes giving birth or what have you. And not that it instructed me on how to do it, but that it made me think about the ways that we see in media representations of childbirth, like on popular television, a woman screaming, being rushed on a gurney down the... It's always this like screaming, maniacal, frenzied thing. And my experience of childbirth was so different. I mean, it was intense and amazing and crazy in all kinds of ways, but the sound was radically different. The experience Mm. was nothing like any representation I'd ever seen. It seems like a lot of the book you were saying started off as poetry and you say you started writing about pain and the difficulty of capturing pain and so much of poetry is the language is in a way that you can't put into prose. Sometimes you can put into poetry certain experiences that seem without. Yeah, it goes back to the question of like how I ended up writing about these particular things. And I think pain was something that I was writing poetically about a lot, but never able to, I mean, everything that I was writing was about the inescapability, like the impossibility of capturing that kind of pain in language. And there's a mm-hmm. history of writing about Elaine Scarry's book, The Body and Pain, is an example of this, but the the ways in which pain becomes indescribable. And I think one of the things that I was trying to do in the conversion, I guess, of the book from a series of poems where I was working through ideas to a longer narrative, I think it's a narrative, no archive in the form it's taken now, is to just simply write about the experience of that pain without trying to capture the thing that it was, but to think about all the valences that surround it, all mm-hmm. of the feelings and all of the sounds and all of the bewilderment of pain without actually being able to capture the pain itself. I think I called it the painness of pain, the pain of pain. Or You know, speaking of that, one thing that happens in the book and in your own kind of intellectual trajectory that I found deeply resonant and would just love to hear your perspective on is the way that the kind of turn to affect and something which I think you are picking up through queer studies, right? Mm -hmm. Which is something that you kind of came into. And I love this moment where you say, 
I think you were talking to a friend or an advisor that said, well, now that I'm reading all of this queer studies stuff, I'm starting to find all these queer desires yeah. within myself. Yeah. Right? I love that so too. this kind of like queer conversion like, no, narrative. Yes. You're just a vegetarian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 A, Don't yeah. worry about it. Yeah. So, but I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about what, because I have found specifically affect studies and obviously queer studies, not as like a map to a kind of self-knowledge, which I should be careful about. Mm-hmm. Obviously those terms are in scare quotes, mm-hmm. but like what the affect as a different range of knowledge and a knowledge that always actually kind of seems to refute itself or never be exactly pinned down, but gives you a different grip on something outside of like strict history, strict epistemology, those Mm -hmm. kind of things. Mm -hmm. Like how has that work been generative for you, both in terms of the types of things that you're mapping out in the book, but Mm -hmm. also just as a person? I think a lot of the work in feminist new materialisms, which is not unrelated to affect studies and queer theory, I mean, they all all sort of coalesce. (laughs) has been really like an interest in the ways that the things that these intellectual trajectories to which I'm committed, which I study, which I teach, are echoing ways of being in the world that already existed. Mm. You know, a lot of the questions of alternative forms of community, alternative forms of being together, the question of how we're radically porous beings that are entangled with the environment, that are entangled with each other, exists in all kinds of communities and all kinds of histories outside of modern Western European thought. Right. And so one of my interests in that whole realm of scholarship is the way that it actually, it moves us forward, certainly, but it also echoes a whole series of knowledges that have been stamped out from above. And so that's the first thing that I want to say is that just I have an indebtedness to ways of knowing, indigenous ways of knowing across the globe, you know, whether that's looking to African traditions or South Asian traditions or I'm trained as a post-colonialist. So that's been a lot of my study or uh, North American indigenous forms of knowledge and forms of living in relation to the environment. But I think for myself in a kind of practical everyday way, you know, it marks for me I think there was a moment in this whole mashup of like, I'm reading all this queer theory and it's super igniting (laughs) me. I wanted to say very provocatively and sort of tongue in cheek that reading queer theory made me queer. And I think that's part of what I was trying to do to the mentor that I was talking to in that (laughs) moment. He was like, I don't know about that. I think you just have alternative practices because you're a vegetarian. (laughs) But I think that what I was trying to get at, it's not that I didn't have queer desire before that, but I'm really interested in the way that theory isn't a mode of accounting for simply chronicling or reading or interpreting the world, but actually itself can produce radical desire and radical new ways of being. So, you know, a lot of what's come out of me, what's come through me in engagements with queer theory and with affect studies, et cetera, has been really a recrafting of the way that I live my life, like at the level of who I cohabitate with and how structurally changing architecture to make my life work in a different way and really interrogating the forms of relationships that I have with people. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Julieta Singh, author of No Archive Will Restore You. We will return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. We're here today with Medea Ocher, LARB's managing editor, and she's going to recommend a piece from LARB. Right. Instead of recommending a book, I thought since we are in the middle of the LARB fun drive, 
I would recommend one of my most favorite pieces that appeared online and in the quarterly this year. This was a short story called The Cafe by Kristen Gleason. Mm. The Cafe, I highly recommend to everybody. The Cafe is about three women sitting around in a weird disembodied cafe drinking decaffeinated coffee and eating seeded crackers. Mm -hmm. And they begin discussing the importance of travel and how much travel changes you and how very important it is to go to countries that are different from yours. And then they start relating stories of their own travels and it gets really, really weird and surreal and violent. You're really hooking me in here with the weird, getting weird. Can you give me a little example of of what happens? Yeah, so one of the women talks about going to Egypt and she recalls a nightgown just appearing at her hotel room. She wears the nightgown and then she feels herself inside of a cup (laughs) with two men looking at her and she herself is nude. Um, Another woman tells a story about uh, the cutting of a tree. Another woman tells a story about a crying vagrant that she comes across who is looking for her lost book. It gets weirder and weirder as you go along, and I don't want to give it away. And then it finally sort of erupts in violence at the cafe itself. Among the women. Among oh, the women. Or maybe you don't want to say. But, uh, okay. Yeah, I won't give away who, who gets hurt, but it's wow. great. It's great. It sounds great. It's very funny. It's weird. It's surreal. It's, I think, the best story I have read this year, maybe, of all the stories I've read this year. And not to toot my own horn or our own horn, but it's truly great. And it's one of the best representations, I think, of the commodification of experience, currency, the discussion of travel that we have as a sort of enrichment opportunity and the general uh, sort of weird undercurrent of violence uh, beneath it all. Wow. Okay, I'm I'm definitely going to read this. So tell us the name of the story again. It's called The Cafe by Kristen Gleason, and you can find it online at the Los Angeles Review of Books or in the romance issue of our quarterly journal. Thank you so much for recommending that. Thanks, Kate. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Julieta Singh, author of No Archive Will Restore You. Can I ask you, and this might be too personal, but... I think nothing's too personal <laughs> after this book. <laughs> it's true. That, that, yes, there's shitting in it, so I've, everything's on the everything's table. Everything's fair game, yeah. But how exactly did you restructure your actual life in light of critical theory that you were reading. Yeah, I mean, one um, example is that I have a child with my best friend and intellectual collaborator, Nathan Snaza, um, and we we bought together a duplex, and we live upstairs, downstairs, with a kind of queer cohabitation where there's a suture in the house that's family environment. So it's not like 
our child feels like she lives in a totally unified environment, Mm -hmm. but we have separate autonomous spaces. We realized at some point that architecture is structurally produced in order to um, facilitate reproductive heteronormative family units and that there was no architecture at play that could allow us to live in the kind of creative way that we had crafted. And so we have sort of maneuvered this duplex into something that is adjacent, like we are together, we're a family, there's no, there, but also with our own space and complete family environments. That's so interesting. And have you, I mean, your daughter is young. Have you discussed this with her in some way or tried to sort I of try and tell her it? that we're special and she thinks we're boring. <laughs> <laughs> but she understands, you know, I think she understands. She understands that her parents are best friends uh-huh. and that that might not be common, but she doesn't, she has no pathology around it because that's what she's her open. life is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> in terms of the way often people think of children is, do you think that that structure, that family structure, because it's different and it, the you have to be more conscious of certain autonomies in that structure. Maybe has that changed the way you're raising your daughter or, you know, thinking about a child as a separate entity, but also something that, you know, quote unquote belongs to you or that's your responsibility. Um, Has that filtered into the way you raise your own child? I think definitely. I mean, I, you know, I think she has weirdo parents and that definitely is going to affect her. (laughs) She's going to have lots to talk about in therapy um, in in 10 or 15 years. But, um, but I, I think that my, my parenting approach is radically informed by my intellectual um, trajectories. And I talk to her a lot about, you know, one of the things that I'm writing right now is a long letter to my daughter about race and racial hybridity and environmental catastrophe as a parent and what it means to be thinking toward um, being a mother to um, a child in a generation that's going to have to radically break with everything that we know and everything that we do in order to survive. And that's a pretty intense thing to have to approach your kids about, but I'm very invested in forms of parenting as pedagogy Mm. that don't reproduce social norms and that don't reproduce the ways that we're living, but really encourage her to radically rethink how we're living and and ultimately to break from them. Because if the species is going to survive, she certainly can't continue to reproduce what her mother does or what her parents do. And what about your own parents? How, um, I mean, just, you know, as an immigrant, as a daughter of immigrants, they would have absolutely no idea what was happening if I were to live in the same way. You know, they'd be like, what, you live with your friend and your daughter is downstairs? I don't know what you're talking about. This is insane. Um, How did your parents react to this and to your pedagogical structure of parenthood? Yeah, well, my father passed away. So part of the book is kind of tribute, I think, to to him. And so I haven't, you know, I I think that my father who on the, he seemed like a very composed, almost stereotypical Indian father who was like, you know, you you should pursue medicine. You should, you know, like just the, the typical Indian father who's an immigrant who wants his kids to be successful in very, very particular ways. And I, I failed at many turns in those forms of success that he desired. And to his credit, I mean, I had a, a sibling at one point who was dating a trans person 
And I remember approaching my dad and saying like, hey, dad, are you cool with this? Like, do, is there anything you want to talk about? And he looked at me and was like, it's not like she's dating a goddamn kangaroo. And, <laughs> and it was like, he was so much cooler than I anticipated that he would be. Yeah. And, you know, my mom's just like, my mom's a pretty radical, feminist, badass woman. And I think that doesn't make it easier to understand because clearly the way that I'm living, there aren't popular models for the way that we live. And so I think regardless of how liberal your parents are or might surprise you in being, it's still difficult to understand. And, you know, one of the things in my family and beyond that's difficult is to explain that there's nothing pathological. (laughs) And in fact, it's super generative for all of us involved to have best friends who collaborate in all kinds of ways, including as parents, produce alternative forms of family. I think it's still hard for my for my family to understand, even mm-hmm. while they desire to support it. So, Julieta, I'm wondering if you would actually read a little bit from the book, because I would love for our listeners to get a sense of what it sounds like and what we're talking about. Sure. C had just returned from a year of research in Argentina when I met her in my first year of graduate school. She had a no-nonsense sensibility and a rare, brisk walking pace that perfectly matched my own. She was several years ahead of me in her PhD, writing about Argentine women who, as political prisoners during the last dictatorship, stored subversive literature in their vaginal canals. She called this the vaginal library. Both metaphor and place, the vaginal library seemed to me to be an embodied archive in organic ruin. It brought the notion of preservation into the cell in a doubled sense, into those cages that imprisoned women and into the cellular structures of their bodies. Truth be told, I have never once since then heard the word archive without thinking immediately of dissenting vaginas. Those two things, archive and vagina, have become sutured in my thought. I learned from C about these dissenting Argentine women just after the building burglaries, after I had stumbled on Gramsci's summons to compile an inventory of historical traces. It was then that I started to wonder over my own body as an impossible, deteriorating archive a body that had across my life felt both excessive and insufficient, oftentimes even monstrous. Abandoning the pursuit of a legitimate archive, one external to me and one that might ensure my professional success and upward mobility, I began instead to dwell on the messy, embodied, illegitimate archive that I am. Mm. That's perfect. Yeah, that's great. Um, Well, and actually that brings me to the question that I wanted to ask, which is, can we talk a little bit about how you define archive in this book, because it's obviously not quite the standard definition that most listeners might have in their mind. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the standard definition that most listeners might have in their mind is the archive as a physical brick and mortar space where materials about some aspect of history are housed. And one of the sort of riffs um, of the book is that I too thought of archive in that way and then entered graduate school. I moved to the U.S. and entered graduate school where everybody used the term archive so ubiquitously and opaquely. I had no idea what the hell anybody was talking about. And so you walk into a graduate seminar And all of these strangers will say, what's your archive? And I'm not an archival studies person, and I never was. I was studying literature. So I had no idea how to answer this question. And I realized at some point that archive circulates in academic thought 
um, to describe virtually anything that you're working on. So it's not about going to a place and researching archives necessarily, but it might be a collection of um, literary texts or a photographer, the history of a particular photographer's work. So archive comes to mean almost anything. And I wanted to play with that weird almost anythingness of the way that archive circulates within academia to become a way of thinking about chronicling or taking stock of or even like organizing or making sense of my own body and my body's relation to the outside world. There's, you know, there's so, uh, maybe this is a silly question, but there's so much here about the traces that other people leave in you, the kind of porousness of your own body, um, that it just makes me think about an idea of a shared archive Mm. um, between other people. Yeah. And that, and I, and I wonder how, when we're talking about something like an archive, like this large idea, it seems kind of opaque and obscure to even say what what would that be. But mm-hmm. um, do you have any ideas about what that would be if if we if we're like so, a collective archive? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're so bound to other people, and our bodies reflect the inventories of other people's trace. I mean, how can we start to think towards that? I think that's an beautiful question and probably like the best promise that you're deriving from the book. Like, what would it mean to move away from the self and the chronicling of the self to think in a radically open collective way? What if we were to imagine an archive or, um, a, you know, which is another way of saying a series of ways of reading, interpreting our relationships to each other. And that can happen in any configuration, you know. And one of the things I've been thinking a lot about after, you know, I'm, I'm discovering things about the book through engaging with people, which is like the coolest part actually about writing a book. Um, and there's a lot in that book that circulates around crime scenes and and moments when my body is under threat or um, actually being criminally invaded in some way. And one of the things that I am trying to think toward in that book and in the aftermath of the book is how not just to make a, ra- a kind of radical break or a separation between my my body and myself and the people who have entered it or surrounded it in aggressive ways. And, and to think instead about a kind of collective archive that allows us to account for all of the ways in which everybody involved in that surrounding crime scene. It doesn't need to be criminal. It can be a scenario of love. It can be a family. It can be a chosen family. It can be anything. Um, How we can read alternately or interpret differently from the dominant culture's way of presenting us as a victim and a perpetrator, but to have more enfleshed, embodied, um, wider networks of interpreting a scene, any scene or any collective, any gathering, whether it's wanted or unwanted. Mm-hmm. It strikes me also that there's, in this last part that you had read, the mm-hmm. stuff about the deteriorating archive, right? One of the things that I'm always fascinated by is the ephemeral, right? Which the ephemeral kind of leaves traces in ways that if you know what to look for, right, then you can find it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then the ephemeral also has this capacity to destabilize the sense of permanence that we tend to associate with the archive, right? Mm-hmm. So what would it mean to have an archive that can decompose, mm-hmm. right? Like an archive that mm-hmm. can go away, that can be there, mm-hmm. or that can 
transform, to Mm -hmm. leave its trace in other ways Mm -hmm. that then kind of links you back to these archives. So can you talk a little bit, I mean, I know that's like a thing that comes a lot in queer studies. Yeah. Um, So can you talk about that as like, if one of the things that you're doing is breaking down this public-private distinction, right, of the body, and Mm -hmm. the body is the site of a public history. Mm -hmm. What do we do with a public history that we can't always grasp or hold, Mm -hmm. right? How do we become comfortable with that slippage? Yeah. Tell me if this is answering your question, because your question is... is, It's diffuse. It's it's, (laughs) It's it's diffuse. diffuse. Like the archive, it's everywhere. I, I think that, you know, the book ends on this desire to study the history of burnt books. Mm-hmm. And the end of the book is trying to think about the ways that there are long histories of erasure, of taking ideas, of taking bodies and and destroying them. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested less in the reconstitution of those destroyed things and more in the remnants of them and what we can do with the remnants of them. So the book ends with this idea to sort of like gather the ashes of the burnt book, not to necessarily remake it, to look back to it as something that might give us better insight into who we are, but to actually be with the weird, decomposed, destroyed elements that are Mm. scattered around us and to abide by them, even to nurture them. And which seems a particularly important political point to make at this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And we see so much destruction. Exactly. Exactly. And so I'm interested in in staying with the the detritus and the messiness and the things that have been destroyed from on high, the things that we ourselves destroy without necessarily offering it consideration, yeah. offering those forms of destruction consideration, or the ways that as as bodies we're trained to conceal certain aspects of ourselves and to reveal others. And so I think in, in terms of a collective, my investment in the book is to push us toward not a simple act of, as the book says, restoration, mm. not a desire to put everything back together just the way it was, but a way to embrace the kinds of destruction that are all around us all the time and to gather together in that, to come together in that destruction rather than to fantasize our way out of it or to, to, to take it away. So I guess we will close there. And thank you so much. We've been speaking with Julieta Singh, author of No Archive Will Restore You. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 